Let's turn in our Bibles uh, to the book of Exodus, to the book of Exodus. We're continuing our story, and especially right now, we're looking at these, the 10 plagues or the 10 signs that God is giving to Pharaoh as he's calling his people out of Egypt. So you can turn in your Bibles to Exodus uh, chapter 8, and you can put your finger there. We'll get there in just a second. But before we begin, I want to start back a little bit. In the New Testament, in the book of Colossians, Paul is addressing this idea of idolatry. Last week, we talked a lot about idolatry, and we compared it and talked about, yes, there is a a worship of false gods and how the story of the Exodus is God confronting these these counterfeit gods and establishing himself that Yahweh, God, the creator of heaven and earth, is the only one and true God. But also we looked at the fact that how we are so prone to make idols, we're so prone to put our worship and our attention and our focus on things that, that we want rather than what God wants for us. Paul addresses this in Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 5 and 6, where he says this, Now put to death, therefore, see that word, death, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality and impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. What we're seeing here is Paul describing, and and I wrote this in the midweek meditation if you got that, how Paul is making a connection between the sins of our flesh and what we desire and what we long for, and he's calling those things idols. That's idolatry. But he goes farther than that when he says, because of these, because of the sin in our hearts that cause us to lust away from God and walk away from God and make our own desires our gods, he says the wrath of God is coming. When we read that and our hearts kind of drop because the wrath of God is not something we want to think about or talk about. When we see the ferocious power of a storm, we think of the power of God, our minds wonder, is God's wrath poured toward me? Let's back up a little bit in Colossians, and we have this here also in verses 1 through 4. This is the verses preceding this verse about idolatry and wrath, and this is what Paul wrote to that church. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What Paul's doing is creating a contrast. He's starting with life and he's ending with this concept of God's wrath. Because God's wrath is the opposite of God's resurrection, which is life. And what does that end in? It ends in glory. The Lord cannot fellowship with sin. I'm sorry, let me back up. God's wrath and God's life both flow out of the same character. There's not a conflict in God's mind or in God's heart or even in the pages of Scripture between God's wrath and God's glory or God's life. They both flow out of who he is. The same character of a good and holy and merciful and loving God. So how can this be? How can God be both sometimes show wrath but also be good and loving and holy. 
So a few things we need to understand as we think about the Lord, especially as we come into the, our story, or back into our story in the book of Exodus, that one, God cannot share his glory with others. He's not going to share his glory with others. He, he cannot share his godness with humanity, with, create, with the, with the cre- created order. God will not share his glory. That would make him less than God. But also, the Lord cannot fellowship with sin. There's a polarity in God that sin just reflect, reflect, reflects off of him like, like if you were to take a magnet and put the ends together. He cannot be what he is not, and he cannot fellowship with sin. Because he is holy, he cannot tolerate sin in his presence. And the Lord cannot permanently accommodate injustice. Because God is holy and righteous and good, he's not going to allow injustice to continue to grow, continue to dominate, and continue to do his destructive work. It's brought to my mind a few years ago. We were living in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we lived in a nice place, but there was some shady stuff that was happening near us, and, and twice we got broken into. One time I didn't even know we got broken into. I got up in the morning, I went downstairs, I did my thing, I went off to work, but when I went off to work, the person was watching, they saw me leave, and they assumed the house was empty, and they came into the house through the back garage door. They were in our yard, in our house. They were rummaging through things, and they heard my son get up from for school, and they heard his voice, and they went out the window. And no one really understood what was going on until they went into the kitchen and they saw my wife's purse dumped out and a bunch of money was taken. And when we realized that we had been robbed and that an intruder was in our house with our family sleeping upstairs and me gone to work, it was a scary thing. It wasn't that's something that still kind of leaves his imprint on our family, and so. We got an alarm system, and we put it in, and, and a few months went by, and nothing happened again. And, and one night in the middle of the night, I heard the alarm go off. Well, you look at me, and I, a lot of you probably assume that I'm a bodybuilder, and I'm just going to tell you that's not true. I'm not. Looks can be deceiving. And I am also not like Charles, a judo expert. You know, I'm, I'm none of those things. I haven't been in a fight since middle school. Like, I'm, I'm not intimidating to anyone. But I tell you what, when that alarm went off, something kindled inside me, and I was mad. And I ran down those stairs without thinking, probably very foolishly, because if there was an intruder in my house, I probably would have, would have gotten shot. <laughs> but I was so mad, because I thought about my family, and I thought about the intrusion in our home, and all I wanted in that moment was justice, and I was ready to do violence. Why? Was it because I was angry, or was it because I was loving? It was both of those things. Because I was loving of my family, I wanted to make sure they were safe. And it responded in a way that was, I was ready for wrath. Someone was violating our home. They didn't belong there. Well, it turned out they were only breaking into the garage, and by the time I got downstairs uh, and realized what a foolish position I was in, they were already out of the garage and were gone. We were safe. We were fine. I wanted to protect what I love. Wrath for some was love for others. And God's wrath against the death and the violence and the injustice of sin, the things we're going to see in the book of Exodus, how Pharaoh had enslaved the people and was perpetuating his injustice toward them and was acting in violence toward them, even killing their infants. God's wrath toward that injustice was love. 
He acts in a way that exposes sin. He exposes injustice and it shows his patience. At the same time, though, he's also patient and he's merciful. We're going to see that also in this story as he's patient in calling Egypt to repent of their sin and to follow himself. It's awesome, but it's also devastating. At one point, someone could look at the story of the Egyptians that we're going to look at again in a moment here and say, well, maybe they were ignorant. They were ignorant of who the true God was. They were ignorant of the creator God and all that he wanted to do for them. They were ignorant in their sin against God. But at some point here in this story, as the, the, the plagues and the signs one after another become evident, it becomes clear that Pharaoh and the leaders of Egypt and the people of Egypt were no longer merely ignorant of who God was. Pharaoh was suppressing the truth of God. He was hardening his heart toward the Lord. Evidence and signs were being given to him over and over again, and Pharaoh's violently oppressing the truth in his heart. He was ignoring the obvious. He was being stubbornly rebellious. His violent exploitation of the Israelites was not just a well-meaning but ill-fated attempt at paternalism. It was seething. It was spiteful. It was pit of hell evil against God and all that God loves. And God is going to expose it. That's what a loving God does. He exposes sin. Romans 1, we talked about last week, it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. This is what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. As we look at this story, as it continues, of this confrontation between the God of heaven, Yahweh God, Moses, and on the other side, Pharaoh and his magicians, I want us to notice a few things. One, that the unbelieving heart resists God. As we look at this story, I want us to see it. The unbelieving heart resists God. There is no repentance. Over and over again, Pharaoh is going to be given an opportunity to repent, and Pharaoh resists. Secondly, the unbelieving heart negotiates with God. We're going to see Pharaoh trying to make deals with God. Well, you know what? I'm going to obey you, but only in this way. We got to be aware of that in our own lives. So we negotiate with God. There's repentance with conditions. We're also going to see the unbelieving heart manipulate, trying to manipulate God with a false repentance. Okay, I'm sorry, God. And then back out. Pharaoh is trying to manipulate God. And also the unbelieving heart finally and totally, in the end, rejects God. And here we see darkness. So let's turn in our, let's, let's dive into the story at this point. We're in Exodus chapter 8. If you want to follow along on the screen, you're welcome to follow along on the screen. Or you can turn in your pew Bibles. Uh, in your pew Bible, it's on page 55, uh, 50, 54 and 55. And you can follow along. So what happens in this story? Early in the morning, Moses got up. The Lord called him out to get up early in the morning, and he goes out to the morning, and he sees Pharaoh, Pharaoh going through his rituals every single morning as he would go out to the Nile River. 
And God again sends Pharaoh. And remember last week, we talked about these signs that God gave, the, 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 the staff being turned into a serpent. And we, we talked about the frogs coming out of the, out of the ground and or out of the river. And we talked about the river being turned into blood. And we talked about the lice or the gnats, or, or maybe it was even mosquitoes. The language is a little bit unclear there, that, that God brought out to judge and call Pharaoh to repentance. And over and over again, when God said, let my people go, Pharaoh said, no. And so now we see this going on a little bit deeper. Remember before, every single thing that God did, the, the magicians of Egypt tried to copy. And now we see at the last one, the, 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 the emergence of those biting gnats that no longer could the magicians of Egypt match what God was doing. And yet they still are going to show up here in our story. And so now God comes to Pharaoh with another sign. And this sign is the sign of flies. He's going to send a swarm of flies. and He's going to cover the land of Egypt. And some of you have been through fly epidemics before. I know when we lived in northern Wisconsin, sometimes we get these swarms of flies. They were biting flies. They hurt. But they also made a huge mess. And so the, the, the fly poop was on everything. And here we can imagine this swarm of flies that's coming over the whole land of Egypt. Yes, Egypt worshipped a god with a fly head. And here is the flies overwhelming Egypt. And yet there's something unique about this story. In this plague, for the first time, we see that while God is swarming Egypt with these flies, that God is protecting the land of Goshen where his people lived. That that was the only place in the whole land where the flies weren't be swarming. It says in verse 22, On that day I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I am the Lord in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. Why would God do that? He's doing that as a, as a sign. This isn't just a natural phenomenon. When flies swarm a land, they swarm everywhere. But here's this little pocket where these people live. To kind of imagine, I live over in Glenmore, and imagine flies are all over Fremont, but in Glenmore, there's no flies. If that was happening, what would you think? Something unusual is taking place here. And that's exactly what was happening in this story. It was a sign. doesn't mean that God's people don't go through hard times all the, uh, often. We sometimes do. But in this case, God was trying to say something to the Egyptians, that this was of God, that this was a special sign, something they ought to pay a special attention to. And what does Pharaoh do? Look at verse 28. Pharaoh comes to them. He says, I will let you go offer sacrifice to the Lord, your God in the wilderness, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. See, Pharaoh's negotiating with God. I'll do what you want, but you know, I'm not going to give all the way into you. God's wanting him to bow his knee to, him, to, to the Lord. And instead, Pharaoh's slightly bowing. I'll, I'll, I'll do kind of what you want me to do. Moses goes to the Lord and relents, even though he knows that Pharaoh is not repentant. And again, God removes the sign. You'd think after a certain point that people would start to get the picture, but they're not getting the picture. One by one, the signs come. One by one, Pharaoh's not relenting. Moses comes back to him in verse 9. And now we see the stakes are even greater. Up to this point, the signs have been mostly annoying. At this point, it becomes deadly. The Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord God of the Hebrews says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. 
If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock, in the field, on your horses, donkeys, camels, on your cattle, sheep, and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. And the Lord set a time and said, Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. What happened? Just as God predicted, just as Moses said, God began to strike down the animals. Now we're seeing actual things dying because of the sin of Pharaoh. And what did Pharaoh do? He looks into it. He investigates in verse 7, and he finds that even though the animals of Egypt are dying, none of the animals of Israel are dying. And yet, it says, his heart was unyielding, and he would not let the people go. I want to ask, ask the question to yourself, is God being patient here? Is God being patient? Over and over again, God is offering opportunity after opportunity for, the, for Pharaoh to repent, for the, cho- the children of Egypt to see that the Lord is the one true God. Is Pharaoh yielding to God at this point? No. So what would you do if you were God? God again comes through Moses and Aaron. And now he brings a plague of boils upon them. He throws ashes in the air, soot in the air as a sign, as a symbol of what's coming next. And pretty soon all the people are breaking out in boils. These large, pussy, painful breakouts on their skin and on their body. It's all over the place. It's affecting everyone in the land of Egypt, except for people that are the the children of Israel. It says here, this is kind of a, a comedic aside in some ways. It says in verse 11, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and all the Egyptians. They'd gone from doing and trying to copy what God was doing to now not even be able to stand. They're so in so much pain. They, they, they're, they're contaminated by the same diseases that are affecting everybody else. At this point, when the, your body's being affected, you think you'd repent and turn to God? We kind of would hope that Pharaoh would do it at this point. But again, does Pharaoh repent and follow God? No. Okay, it's okay to talk back. I know, otherwise you're going to get tired. Does Pharaoh repent? No. Does he let God's people go? No, he doesn't. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord has said to Moses. Pharaoh's hardening his heart and hardening his heart and hardening his heart. Over and over again, he's hearing and having opportunity to repent and follow God. And finally, it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. What comes next? Then comes the plagues of hail. Early in the morning, Moses goes out and confronts Pharaoh. He says to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and your officials and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in the earth. Why is God doing this? So that Pharaoh would know that there is no one like God. 
For by now I could have stretched out my hand and I could have struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose that I might show my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. There's two things that God is doing here. One, he is extending once again mercy to Pharaoh. That Pharaoh would have an opportunity to repent and to follow God. That the people of Egypt would see that God is the only true God. That they would turn from their sin, their, their, their violence, their injustice. And that they would turn and trust the one true God. But also God is doing something else. He's raising up Pharaoh so that everyone will see the consequences and the damage that happens when you reject God. He's raising up Pharaoh that his name, God's name, would be proclaimed in all the earth. And do you think Pharaoh is going to respond well to this? Does he let God's people go? No. And once again, God brings the hail, he brings the rain, he brings the thunder, and the crops now are destroyed. If you're in an agrarian society and your animals die, you're in trouble. But if your crops die and your animals die, now you're in real trouble. The crops are destroyed. The, 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 the hail has wiped them all out. And still, they did not fear the Lord. Moses goes in verse 29 and says, When I leave the city, I'll pray and I'll ask it to stop. But he looks at Pharaoh and says, But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. says in verse 35, then Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let the Israelites go, just the Lord had said through Moses. So then what does God do? The next plague is the plague of locusts. We might not understand that, but in this time, the, the locusts coming in and devouring the crops would have been a horrible sight to see as the sky would have been dark with this whole swarm of insects. And so now, not only are the animals dying, not only have most of the crops been destroyed, but now a whole swarm of locusts goes in and everything that was left is now gone. They will cover the face of the ground so it can't be seen. They devoured what little was left after the hail. And verse 7 comes to him, uh, verse uh, Verse 7 of, uh, I think we're in chapter 9 now. The official said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is ruined? So now the officials even are recognizing that something is happening here. They're going out and they're, they're begging Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let the people go. And Aaron, Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, Go and worship the Lord your God. For he said, but tell me who will be going. And as soon as they told him who will be going, again, Pharaoh turned his heart and said, and changed his mind and, and said, Lord, the Lord will be with you. I'll let you go along with your women and children, but clearly you were bent on evil. No, only have the men and worship the Lord, since that is what you've been asking for. And then Moses and Aaron were driven out of the Lord's presence. Again, God judges Israel, or judges Egypt, I'm sorry. Pharaoh calls them back together again. I've sinned, now he says in verse 16. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against the Lord. Now forgive my sins once more, and I pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. This is the false repentance we talked about earlier. After all these things, Pharaoh wants, shows signs of repentance. But do you think Pharaoh's truly sorry at this point? Do you think he truly understands what he has done is wrong? As soon as Moses and Aaron leave his presence, 
Pharaoh's back to his old tricks, and his heart, his heart is hardened, and he would not let the people go. And now we're reaching the climax of the story. There's one thing I, I failed to point out, and I meant to point out, is that it says in talking about this, this plague of, 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 uh, of hail in chapter 9, that it says that some of the Egyptians, they heard the message of the plague of or the, this, this hail coming, and they listened to the word of the Lord, and they feared God, and they brought their animals in and were protected. It's interesting that even though God is judging Egypt, that he's still holding out his mercy towards these people, and some of them are responding to what God is saying. And now we come to the second to last plague, and tomorrow, or next Sunday, we will look at the last one. And this is the plague of darkness. In verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads out over Egypt darkness that can be felt. Have you ever experienced darkness that could be felt? I'm not sure that I ever have. I've been in pitch black. I can remember once I was in high school and we were playing in a basketball tournament and we stayed in a school in the basement and there was no natural light. When the lights went out, it was so dark. It was disorienting. And I don't know exactly what happened here, what the natural phenomenon that God had caused to happen, but likely a, a sandstorm or something like this, or it could have just been a supernatural blotting out of the light of the sun. But either way, there was no light in Egypt, except for one place. Where do you want to guess that the one place they could see light was? Where the children of Israel lived. And the darkness was for three days over the land of Egypt. And they could not see. And they were going mad in their minds. And again, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let his people go. And then the Lord, Pharaoh says to Moses in verse 28, Get out of my sight. Make sure that you never appear before me again. The day that you see my face, you will die. And Moses looked at him and said, just as you say, I will never appear before you again. Pharaoh tries to negotiate with God. And now Pharaoh gets to a place where he is completely and utterly rejecting God. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite books called The Great Divorce, wrote these words that I think apply well to this. He says, you can go to the next slide. I think it's on there. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. I'm sorry, those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there would be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. This is what Romans talked about last week when we looked more intently at it, that their foolish hearts became darkened. There's a foolishness that's taking place here in the heart of Pharaoh that we're able to see through the lens of this story and exchange the truth of God for a lie. We see that, again, the unbelieving heart rejects God. The unbelieving heart negotiates with God. The unbelieving heart tries to manipulate God. And the unbelieving heart finally and, for, and, and fatally rejects God. The plagues have reached their penultimate conclusion. 
And we see the ramifications, and we can see the ramifications in five different areas. This is from one uh, theological commentator named James Smith, who's an, who's an expert in Old Testament. And he, he's, he points out these five areas where the plague had ramifications. One, the plagues were designed to discredit the gods of Egypt. Heka, the frog goddess. Apis, the sacred bull. Ra, the sun god. Could not penetrate the darkness in which Yahweh wrapped Egypt. The plagues were designed to totally discredit the false gods of Egypt. The plagues also served to discredit the religious leaders of Egypt. Despite all their wisdom and despite all their magic, despite all their power, if they could do these things in Fremont, they'd get a following. And yet, in the end, they were totally discredited. The plagues, thirdly, revealed the importance, I'm sorry, the impotence of Pharaoh as a ruler and as a god. Pharaoh was forced to compromise with Moses. In the end, he was shown completely powerless. The Israelites, they were, the plagues were, designed to free them and to convince them of the sole divinity of Yahweh. They saw God's awesome power. The plagues also showed God's judgment on the land of Egypt for the years of mistreatment of his people. And lastly, the plagues were designed to magnify the power of God. We're left at the end of these increasing plagues as they go from just minor inconveniences to death. And we're going to see next week the horrific conclusion of this story, but also the hope that's there as well, that they show the mighty power of God that even the most powerful nation of the world could not stop him. These six purposes could be summed up in one word. What we want to see from these stories in in Exodus is this word, know, to know who God is. Pharaoh did not know Yahweh, but by the end, he knew. So, how should we respond? How do we take a story like this and apply it to our lives? What is God doing in our life, and how should we respond? I think the response could be a couple of different directions depending on where you stand. Actually, the responses will be the same, but where you stand makes all the difference. The first thing I think that as people reading this story in the 21st century, we should see is that, number one, we are to bend our knee in submission to, the God, to our God. These stories are not meant to just kind of be put in a picture book one day and told to our children. They reveal something about the character and nature of our God. And it's an awesome story. I don't mean awesome story like we put on our pom-poms and celebrate it, but it's, it's awesome in that if we really read it and understand it and think about it, our jaw drops to the ground. We see an awesome God. And so what is the response of a people of faith to this awesome God? Brothers and sisters, we bow our knee before the Lord. If you're an unbeliever here this morning and you're reading this story maybe for the first time, I hope that you will see it and hear it and you'll go, I ought to follow and obey and bend my knee before a God like that. Pharaoh, instead, a foolish response, what did he do when he, was, when he saw the power of God? Did he bow his knees? Did he bend his knees to God? No, he became proud in his heart against God. 
The response of faith is to bend our knee in submission to the God of heaven, to give him the worship that he's due, to give over our stubbornness and our selfish ambition and our desire to control every little thing and allow God to be in control. Bend in submission. The second is similar to it, and that is to bow in worship. To the to Pharaoh, everything he wanted and had was destroyed. But to the children of Israel, they were being freed. The injustice was being overturned. The slavery that they had found themselves in for generations was now being relieved. The deliverance was there. And the response to people who find themselves suddenly freed from slavery, whether that's slavery in Egypt or whether that's slavery to sin, is to bow our hearts in worship. This is what God was calling his people out to do, was to follow him in worship. And Pharaoh had every opportunity to join with God's people in bowing his knee in worship. As we read a story like this, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I hope that your heart is moved to worship this Lord and Savior who takes us, us, us all, uh, takes us also, that's a hard thing to say, takes us also out of sin and injustice to, and the slavery that sin brings in our lives and frees us to live in the freedom of Christ. We bow our, our knees in worship. Bend, bow, and in the last B. But also to beware. To beware of the pull. Beware of the pull of what? To beware of the pull of false gods in our life. When we look at the story of Pharaoh, it's a cautionary tale. Because Pharaoh, even though we don't want to identify with Pharaoh, we definitely more want to identify with Moses, but the truth is, There's a little bit of Pharaoh in us too. When we have opportunity to lord it over people, we take it. When we have opportunity to control our lives, we want it. And the more control seems to be going through our fingers, the more we try to grasp it. We feel the pull toward idolatry. Maybe it's not to set up an idol in your home and to bow down to it. Although maybe it is. But it might just be to make ourselves God. Control our own destiny, set our own channel, do what we want to do. That's what Paul's referring to back when he says, talks about sexual sin, talks about greed, and says that's idolatry. It's doing what we want to do and following our own passions and lusts, and we're aware of the pull of this. It's not going to be very long in the story of Exodus that we're going to get to a place where we look at these people of God who have been freed from all this slavery have seen the power and the awesomeness of God and they're going to follow God out into the wilderness and they're going to feel the pull of idolatry. They're going to try to contain God and do it God in his own way, their own way. So brothers and sisters, I urge us as we hear this story, as we think about last week's sermon and this week's sermon, to bend our knees in submission to the Lord, to bow our hearts in worship to this great Lord and Savior, but also to beware Beware of the pull of idolatry in our own lives, even as Christians, that we can get sucked into it.